Hello, I'm Jim Cuno, president of the J. Paul Getty Trust. Welcome to Art and Ideas, a podcast in which I speak to artists, conservators, authors, and scholars about their work. When I see photos of these destroyed cities of Germany, for me it's not depressive, it's beautiful. It's beautiful because I saw it as a child. In this episode, I speak with painter and sculptor Anselm Kiefer. Not every interview on this podcast turns out as planned. Typically, before I speak with a guest, I do all the reading I think relevant to the topic, books, articles, what have you, and then I formulate questions I think might propel the conversation forward in some kind of clear narrative arc. But sometimes I try too hard, and my questions become leading questions, and the guest, quite rightly, is reluctant to follow my lead. Take the case of Anselm Kiefer, the celebrated German painter, sculptor, draftsman, and bookmaker. Earlier this year, the Getty announced that the 2017 Getty Medal would be awarded to Kiefer, along with Nobel Prize-winning novelist and cultural and political critic Mario Vargas Llosa. The Getty Medal is given annually to notable artists, scholars, and philanthropists. I had interviewed Vargas Llosa for an earlier episode of this podcast and was working with Kiefer's studio to find a time to speak with him. Since I was already traveling to Europe to meet with colleagues, Kiefer and I agreed to meet at his studio in Quasi-Beaubourg on the edge of Paris. I was scheduled to fly overnight from Washington and to arrive in Paris early in the morning. I planned to go straight to my hotel, take a quick shower, have breakfast, and get an hour or two of sleep before making my way out to Kiefer's studio. But as my plane taxied out to the runway at Dulles, it began to rain, then to rain heavily, then rain accompanied by thunder, lightning, and gale-force winds, forcing my plane to return to the gate where we sat for the better part of five hours waiting for the storm to pass. It was clear that I wouldn't make it to Paris in time for my interview as scheduled. This meant that either I'd miss the interview altogether, or Kiefer would have to change his schedule to meet my now new schedule. We finally took off, and I arrived in Paris six hours late. I went straight to the studio, was greeted warmly by the artist, and I began the interview. So, I'm with the painter, draftsman, book, and object maker Anselm Kiefer. I started hesitantly and sleepily by setting the stage for our conversation, reading raggedly from my notes. A studio that occupies the former warehouse of the Samaritan department store. From time to time, Kiefer had to correct my misstatements and pretend to listen appreciatively to my operatic overstatements. Sometimes it was comical. Often it was humbling. He'd correct me and then explain what he thought I should have said, and I'd lose my place, give up, and start a new line of questioning. And after all this time preparing for our interview, I thought I'd blown it and would have nothing for this podcast. But when I listened back to the recording... I thought his comments were worth preserving because they were so smart and honest, and they offered interesting insights into the man and the artist. He was patient and thoughtful, and his replies were always revealing of the meaning of his work. I'll play our conversation for you now, along with some commentary so that you can picture the scene. Let me begin by saying hello, Anselm, and thank you very much for taking hello, the time Jim. to speak with me this, on this podcast. Now, this Kiefer Studio is in a large industrial building, actually a few interconnected industrial buildings, fenced off by chain link. As I approached the studio, tired and confused after my delayed 13-hour overnight flight, I noticed bits and pieces of the artist's large sculptural installations lying around outside, fragments of lead-colored airplane sculptures that seemed suddenly to come alive as a real airplane flew low over my head. There is, in fact, a small airport near the studio. There were also small horses and donkeys munching on grass poking through the cracks in the asphalt. 
Um, why did you move your studio from La Rebote in the south of France, near Avignon, to Quasi Beaubourg here? Um, you know, all my life I was, I, I was working in the desert. So in, in, in Germany I was in a very remote place where um, I had no friends. I was completely alone. I'm working south of France. I had only one friend who was uh, the mayor of the town. He, who helped me a lot to, to do what I wanted to do. But there was no other people I was communicating with. So I thought at the end of my days I want to be somewhere I can communicate with other people. Uh -huh. And in addition, the children had to go to school. So I thought in Paris it's better yeah. to go to school. So, so what is La Rebote like for you now? Is it a, a, a place to go to do work or is it a place to go to revive yourself after all the concentration of work that you do here? No, I, it's still my studio there too. So I it's, go it's there a working reg studio. regularly yeah. uh -huh. there. I have people there working. So tell me about your working process. Do you, do you come into the studio every day, seven days a week? Uh, do you have a working routine? How do you start your work day? Normally, I, I, I was very impressed always when I was very young by the sentence of Rodin, il faut toujours travailler. Uh -huh. You have to work everywhere. Every day, yeah. Because if you wait for a moment where something special arrives, something surprising, it doesn't come if you sit on a, on a chair. You have to prepare the runway where yeah, yeah. things can land, you know. Yeah. And this you do with quotidian work. Normally, I, in the morning, I get up and I, I go through my bibliotheque and I look for a book to, to read something, to be inspired by something. Mm -hmm. And then I go into the studio and I'm working. Yeah. You've, you've got an exhibition up in New York at Gagosian Gallery and you recently had a larger re retrospective at the Pompidou Center. Uh, so do you work to, to deadline? Do you work to projects? Or do you constantly work independent of exhibition projects? No, I'm working what what I want to do in the moment. Mm -hmm. And then if an exhibition is, uh, is to do, then I see what I have. But I don't work especially for the exhibition. But that doesn't mean that the stress you have when the opening comes helps you, yeah. perhaps for some. But yeah. I don't work just for an exhibition, but nevertheless I'm inspired by the date. I then turned to a theme that interests me, and I thought by the evidence of his work that it might interest him, the question of identity, and especially national identity. Now, German national identity has long been rooted not only in the state, but in the territorial place, the dark romantic German landscape, as if German identity is almost a primordial condition. At, at one with the ancient Hercynian forest. You can hear by my stumbling as I'm reading my notes that I'm trying to be precise, but I'm struggling all the same. So landscape has always been important to your work. And has that, has that, is that landscape, because it's of a place, because of Germany, is that part of the attraction to the national identity question for you? You mean how I see landscape? Or what do you mean now? Yeah. And time and again, Kiefer had to correct me, asking me to clarify my questions. Yeah. When you see the landscape, does it, does it, is it early on at the very least, until you've come to work so long in France, you were painting a, the, a place that was evocative of a national identity? Sometimes you couldn't understand me at all. I was trying my best and failing miserably, sometimes going down a blind alley and giving up and asking another very different question. So after that, in the early 70s, you made a number of landscape watercolors, often of northern wintry landscape paintings. One of them, painted in 1971, includes an image of yourself 
Dressed in a gown standing deep within a forest of trees, we see only the trunks of the trees. They're like a prison cell. The trees are like prison bars. Four times or so your height surrounding you such that we can't see the sky. We see only you set within this small clearing, holding a branch in your right hand, which is on fire. What did you mean by that image? This is a romantic painting, because it's me in relation to the landscape. I am... I give something to the landscape. It, I, I give the fire. I give the color to the landscape through my um, torch. Yeah. And the, the color of the, of the forest comes back to me. It's a circular situation, you know. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you were making uh, other pictures, one of them called Father, Son and Holy Ghost. An image of a similar dense forest is joined with a second image of a barren wooden room. The pronounced wood grain of the room recalls the trees from which the room boards were cut and in which there are three chairs, Father, mm-hmm. Son, and Holy Ghost, I presume, uh, and they're on fire. Uh, there's fire on the, on the, on on the, the stairs seat. because it's, it's uh, the, the eternal energy. It's the energy, you know. Father, Son, Holy Ghost, it's, it's, it's the, the triumvirat. Triumvirate. Triumvirate yeah. who, yeah. who, who, who rules the world. But is is it, the, the fire, of course, is both life giving and life taking. Uh, yes, but you know, burning things is not to destroy them; it's just to transform them mm-hmm. in another essence. And um, you know, I, I burn very often my paintings, and they get better. <laughs> Uh, there's another painting in, uh, in which fire is important, and that's one you've titled Germany's Spiritual Heroes. Yeah, yeah. It's painted across the top, suggesting that some have said the Valhalla of Richard Wagner's Ring of the Nibelungen. This is just a collection of things uh, I was uh, obsessed with. Yeah. But is it just that, or is there... Because the critics at least have tried to make a case that you're revisiting the legacy of the German national identity, and whether that's in uh, the occupation photographs that you did, or whether it's um, in the in uh, no, uh, the portraits I, of heroes, uh, mm-hmm. or the association of them in the landscape itself, or the evocation of the landscape. I think there's no innocent landscape. That it happened so much on landscapes, on 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 countries, on states, that you can find everywhere the the um, die, die Spuren. The, el- the traces. So, so for this reason, I'm, I discovered the traces in the landscapes. Yeah. Landscape is for me not only beautiful for itself; it's a container for for traces, yeah, yeah. for history, yeah. for. All. And some of some of that history is an uh, uh, operatic scale, like the Wagner. But some of them is a much smaller scale, like a nursery rhyme. And one of the paintings that you made of these kind of barren fields. Uh, Cockchafer fly and March. My Käfer fliegt, der Vater yeah. ist im Krieg, die Mutter yeah. ist in Pommerland, Pommerland ist abgebrannt, my Käfer fliegt. Yeah, so it's Cockchafer fly, my uh, father is in the war, mother is in Pomerania, Pomerania is burnt up. Tell us about that painting. Was that nursery rhyme? Was it important to you as, as a child? You heard it often? Ah, yes, my, my grandmother sang it to me, yeah. perhaps every day. It was like a rhythm, you know, she, she sang it. She had other songs too, but this is one I remember very well. Was it alarming to you that my that father is in the war, mother's in Pomerania? No, no, for, no, no for, chi- for a child, I think nothing is alarming. A child takes the things as they are, you know. 
they have no categories to do bad or good or it's it's always innocent for yeah. China. For me, for example, the ruins was a playground, and ruins was normal. You know, Ru it was ruins from the war. From the war, yes, yeah. I, I lived in the ruins. So, yeah. are you mean? The dark aspect of this yeah, song, or, yeah, yeah. yeah, but but a child, it's not it's not dark, you know. Yeah. It's just as it is. My caver fliegt. Der Vater ist im Krieg. Die Mutter ist in Pommerland. Pommerland ist abgebrannt. My caver fliegt. It's my daughter. I think. Hello. We broke for a minute while he talked on the phone. When he finished, I tried to take the interview in another direction, toward my interest in failure in making works of art. Again, we started and stopped trying to understand each other. So, so in another, another painting, 1981, called Icarus, March Sand, you have an image of the figure of Icarus falling into a sand, barren March landscape, uh, as if to remind us that human ambition is only vanity and that it, like painting itself, is doomed to fail, doomed to fall short of its goal to represent or signify meaning. Um, Icarus, it's, it's also a, a symbol for um, for to go very high up and to fall down again. But I I wouldn't stay down. I would go up again <laughs> and down again. And yeah. so, so I, I, I see it like this. Hmm. Um, and uh, it's also a symbol for to go on and on to the impossible, what we want. Is that uh, uh, an ambition that is emblematic of vanity, That would, to presume that one could, in fact, go up and up and up and to achieve this? Is it an emblem of overstepping one's bounds? Uh, it's both. But, but for me, vanity is not, it's not nonsense. We are all vain. We want something that we never can achieve. Yeah. We do something for what we don't know the sources. We don't know, we don't know where we come from. We don't know what, why we do this. So it's all vain. Yeah. It's normal. Now, I'm struck by the similarity between your landscapes, uh, the paintings of landscapes, and, and your, uh, your attraction to the ashy gray of lead in these landscapes, this kind of condition of the, of the materials. But and you know, you know the, the, the lead comes from the earth. Mm -hmm. They found it down. Mm -hmm. And it's part of the earth, and you have to extract it. Mm -hmm. It's not surprising. No, not surprising, <laughs> not surprising. But in Beckett's barren landscape, for example, in Waiting for Godot, um, one has, hears his character's frequent admission of their failure to do something, to achieve what they wish to achieve. Most often, in, for example, in Worstward Ho, the, the fiction work that he did, where the figures say, all of old, nothing else ever, ever tried, ever failed, no matter, try again. Fail again, fail better. Yes, it's it's completely normal to fail, and uh, Beckett shows this very well. You know, it's even funny to fail because it's a reality. You cannot do other than fail. Yeah. There's so much ash in your work, and so much lead in your work, or maybe it's not actual ash, but it is, there's burning. There's evidence of burning. No, no. Sometimes there's, I paint with ash. So there's there is this sense that of kind of a, a return to this. Concept as theme of destruction, of failure, uh, or at least it reads as a failure. You no, know, ash is transmission. It's not only destruction, it's transmission. If you burn something, you get ash, and ash is, uh, you know, when they burn um, the forests, yeah. they, they do it in, in, in small parts, not to, to, today, they do it in, in, in miles and miles, you know, but the, the old 
cultures, they burned part of it, and the ash made the field uh, fertile again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's not the, it's not the end point. The phone rang again. The children called. I looked down at my notes, and then we resumed. I wanted to have Kiefer talk about the way he uses history. I recalled the writings of the historian and art historian Simon Shama. We continued on. So Simon has written eloquently of your work in his book, Landscape and Memory. And he sees in your work a landscape of forests permeated by the ghosts of human inhabitants, poets, philosophers, politicians, and the noises, he says, of ancient slaughter, the clash of armies. Yeah, yeah. He once called you admiringly the undertaker of history. Yeah, sure, sure. Um, I, I told you before, uh, I think a landscape is not alone, it's not pure. It's always charged with all history, with events, with battles, with reconciliation, with, with all kinds of, of human being. And, um, and, you know, it's also... I eat history. You know, I eat it like grass. And then it comes out again and then it fertilizes. Mm. Now, in a review, a 2007 review of your exhibition at the White Cube Gallery in London... Simon saw something else in your work, something more optimistic. He saw, in his words, your vast rutted wastelands, germinating brilliant resurrections, pastel blooms, spikes of verdure spouting irrepressibly through the skin of a hard-backed earth rind, or pinch peak poppies trembling atop spindly black stalks that climb gawkily from bituminous slag. He says you were in a redemptive mood, a hopeful mood, was he right? Was there a change in, in your work at that time? I don't ask me about my mood. No. I, I do what has to be done, and my mood is something else. Yeah. Yeah. This is about the same time as you moved to Paris in the studio, the Quasi Beaubourg, 2008. You were given, a, uh, at this time, a peace prize by the German Booksellers Association. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And in your acceptance speech, you wrote, Rubble represents not only an end, but also a beginning. Sure. Rubble is like a plant's blossoms. It's the yeah. radiant high point of an incessant metabolism, the beginning of rebirth. Yeah, sure. That's, you know, when I see photos of these destroyed cities of Germany, though there are a lot, you know, there was nearly all destroyed, and for me it's not depressive, it's beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it's beautiful because I saw it as a child. And as a child, you don't judge it, if it's beautiful or not, you take it as it is. But I thought it's beautiful also because I, I used this material for reconstruction. I did houses, you know, when I was a kid, I constructed houses with these bricks. It was fantastic. Our house, the house of my, uh -huh. my parents, was, was bombed in the night when I was born, and, and there was, the bricks was everywhere. Does the place in which you work and the conditions in which you work, does that affect the paintings that you make? In, in the landscape is different for you than it was in Germany, think, different associations? I think it's not at all different because, you know, I never did a painting who has the starting point of a French landscape. French is really beautiful, you know, it's very different, it's fantastic, but it was never the starting point of a painting. You know, mm -hmm. when I was in Bajac in the south of France, I, I used the photos, I had so much photos, you know, the photos what I did before in Germany. Mm-hmm. Okay, in the same speech, you, you ended it, or near the end of it, you said, what is a work of art? I can only describe the process of how a work comes into existence. It begins in the dark, after an intense experience, a shock, 
At first it's an urge, a pounding. You don't know what it is, but it compels you to act. And at first it's very vague. It must be vague, otherwise it would be just a visualization of the shock experience. Yeah, it's the starting point. But then, after a while, I have something in front of me. I have a, a painting, unfinished painting, but a kind of painting, you know. And then I get in the conversation with this painting. The painting tells me something. I ask them why, why, why this is, there is this lake there and why these colors and so. And then, um, after this conversation, after this analysis, I go back to the painting, and that's it's repeats several times until the painting is finished. You say that a disappointment immediately follows. Something is missing. You say uh, this something is not something that I have not seen that I have perhaps failed to uncover. No, I cannot find what's missing. And at this point, the war in the mind begins. There are so many opportunities, and each option not taken is a loss. And at the same time, a reflection of all the internal contradictions. At some point, the inner war becomes an outer peace. Yes, it's always a big war. You know, uh, Klee said some once, for one painting, I gave up 100 other paintings. <laughs> Because you have... More it continues to, to the work continues, we have more possibilities, more options to go in this direction or in this direction, or you do this, or you, 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 you cover this and you do something other on it. You see it with the old masters too. Sometimes they move the hand and, and so on. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to decide then. And you can do always false decisions, you know. Perhaps it was better before than after, you know. Yeah. And this is a real war in your head. There's a war that you reenact every time you. You take on a painting. Every time you start a painting, it's, you, you know that it's going to be... Not on the beginning. At no. first, it has to be something there where you can... Mm. Be, who gives you the options in different directions. But when it's open for these options, then it's a war. <laughs> How do you know when a painting is finished? It's never finished. No, no uh, sometimes the galleries come and take a painting away and, uh, and sell it. But it's, it's not really um, logic. In your mind, it's not a logical progression of ideas. It's not logic that I take yeah. a painting away to sell it. It's not oh, logic. Logic is to continue the painting. Yeah. Okay, thank you for all of this and putting up with all these questions. These okay, silly we questions. got it. As we wrapped up our interview, I thought I had made a mess of it and had blown my chance to get some meaningful conversation with Kiefer about his work. There were so many false starts and dead ends, interruptions and misunderstandings. Perhaps our conversation would have been better as something more casual, prompted not by what I had read, but by what we were seeing together. The impression isn't that's French. We kept the microphone on after the formal interview was over, capturing our casual conversation and Kiefer's thoughtful remarks about his work and the work of other painters and sculptors he admires. Two years ago, I discovered in, in, in Munich, uh, in, the Neue in the Neue Pinakothek, I discovered these German painters like Slefo, Corinth, Liebermann, there are some more. And I thought... They are, they are good painters. <laughs> First, I didn't take them serious so much. <laughs> the impressionism is in France, you know, yeah. not in Germany. Yeah. Speaking of things French, and the current exhibition in Gagosian makes this very clear, but you used to even say it very early on when you were a young boy that you were uh, attracted to Rodin and the work of Rodin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, when I was 17 years old, I made a big travel auto-stopping, you know, yeah, yeah. to uh, Belgium, Netherlands, France... I came to Paris, I saw, I saw Rodin in the museum. Mm -hmm. But what I didn't see were other drawings, you know. And some of the drawings was never showed. It was recently that was showed because they were really, really um, 
explicit, yes. Yeah, yeah. But my drawings and also the drawings of boys, they look like Rodin. But I didn't know the drawings of Rodin when I did this in the 70s, you know, the, the oh, really, this, yeah. this yeah. women uh, watercolors, yes. So what you knew were photographs of the sculpture, but not the watercolors. Yes, I saw a photograph of the of the sculptures, but not the drawings. Yeah, yeah. I didn't know when I was seventeen. Yeah. So that was my interview with Kiefer. As I said at the beginning of this episode, not every interview on this podcast turns out as planned, and in fact, many don't. But even so, experiences like these reveal the truth about dialogue and conversation. Words can still be revealing and worth sharing. We'll be taking a break over the holidays, and we'll be back on Wednesday, January 10th, 2018. Happy Holidays. Our theme music comes from the Dharma at Big Sur, composed by John Adams for the opening of the Walt Disney Concert Hall in Los Angeles in 2003. It is licensed with permission from Hendon Music. Look for new episodes of Art and Ideas every other Wednesday. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play Music. For photos, transcripts, and other resources, visit getty.edu slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. <laughs>